Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. So let's just say, hypothetically, I give you a magic power. You can become a fly on the wall of any wall regarding the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. Which wall would you want to be on? Um, so the story we're about to talk about is, well, I'll jump ahead and we'll come back. But the, the story that we'll, we'll get into is I think that the deciding factor or one of the really interesting untold stories of the 2016 election was that the digital strategy, the, the digital advertising teams for both, you know, Trump and Clinton actually had different strategies. Um, you know, in like in a nutshell, I think Clinton's team brought a knife to a gunfight. Um, and I would love to be on the wall of those rooms to be like, to see if like Clinton's people are like, yeah, everybody let's go get a knife. And if Trump's people are like, yeah, let's go get a, a let's go get a gun. And like, yeah. that would let me know really quickly <laughs> if everything I've like put together uh, actually um, is true. I should say, by the way, you're, you're, you're like lagging, you're kind of cutting in and out. So like I'm getting smiles, but they're like delayed and frozen. It's a, it's a little strange, but. Um, I, I can work with it, but uh, just so you know, there's a little delay on my end again. Okay, no, no worries. And by by the way, too, if you can try to keep that mic off your shirt because oh. it'll it'll do like yep. some. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, Not no, the it's first okay. Time. Like, just put put your shoulder back. So, so what you're saying, yeah, yeah what you're saying that. is, you would like to be a fly on the wall of wherever that decision was made for the digital marketing marketing approach for the each campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love to have, if I could have if you're like, dude, you get a special power, you you have this theory, yeah. you know, what do you want? I I would if I could be in each room for a day. Like not the public stuff that. So a lot of the story that I'm putting together, I got from like public speaking events. Um, but if I could have actually been in the room and listened to what people had to say and to, you know, to validate that the shit they said in public, sorry, I, I, I guess, can I curse on this thing or Dude, I grew up say whatever Jersey. the fuck you want, say what Wonderful. the fuck you want. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so yeah, just to know if the shit they said in public is the same that they were doing in private. Like there's a chance, I think there's a good, very good reason to believe that it was the same thing, but, um, yeah, I would just love to know, like I, my, my theory is that it's all going to boil down to a a knife to a gunfight. Um, And I, I would love to have been able to see if that actually was what happened. So why don't you do like a, like a hypothetical of the Clinton team approach? So they come up, I'm guessing maybe, hmm, I say they, I don't know who they are. Let let me, let me just, there's like a specific structure um, that I, because we're kind of like diving into the solution. And I want to make sure we frame the problem before we dive into the solution. Go ahead. Let's do it. Awesome. So I was starting to write a book. It's kind of stalled, but it's called Micro Target, Why the Pollsters Failed to Predict Trump's Victory. Um, people still seem to be curious about this, which is why I reached out to you. because I, I still think it's a really interesting story uh, worth telling. Um, and so I want to be really, really, really specific about what I have expertise in what I can talk about 
and everything else that I'm like just another Joe Schmo. Um, so I want to answer. So, so the reason I'm telling the story is I worked at a company that supported the Trump campaign. Um, so I have some insider knowledge that not everybody has. Um, and I've researched a bunch of public sources. So like you could literally go and find the same information that I've found. And, uh, I have a theory and I've connected some dots and I, I just want to put that out there. So, um, the key question that I want to answer is if you and me were alive in 2016, the entire frigging campaign Clinton was winning. Everybody said that Clinton was going to win. It was a matter of by like how much, you know, Nate Silver, 538, said she had a 70% chance. New York Times said she had like a 90% chance. Everyone thought she was going to win. Um, and then she, obviously she lost. And so when the pollsters went to figure out what the mistake was, they did. They rely on this thing called exit polling, where they go to the polls and they say to people, hey, who are you? What, did, what, 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 what was your vote? And people will say, you know, I'm a you know 40 year old mom with three kids. I decided months ago that I was for Clinton. You know, I'm a 70 year old white guy. I decided last week that I was for Trump. Like, and you get mm. the, this like basic data. And so when you compare the exit polling to the the predictive polling, what you, what they found was the bases performed as expected. The Republicans they thought were going to come out came out. Same with the Dems. The the key factor was swing voters in swing states. And that typically, historically, all the information we have about swing voters in swing states is that they've always broken 50-50. And so if swing voters would have broken 50-50, Clinton would have been our president. According to the exit polls, the people that decided and said that I decided on my candidate in the last week, those those are by definition swing voters, (laughs) um, persuadable people that decided last minute, they broke like disproportionately towards Trump. Varies by state, but sometimes it's 60-40, sometimes it's 70-30. But the important thing was it was not a 50-50 split. So the story that me and you and everybody else got from the pollsters, I mean, they basically, it's really a straightforward math problem. I shouldn't say straightforward, but it's not that complicated of like, you take some survey data and historical data and you say like, mm-hmm. if people behave as they've always behaved, how what's going to happen? And that the the bases voted as they'd always behaved, but it was the swing voters that were different. The persuadable people, they were different. Um, and so the question I want to, so if you come back to the key idea, why the pollsters failed to predict Trump's victory, it's because, not because of the bases, it's because of the swing voters. And so the, the narrative, the common narrative in the zeitgeist uh, is the Comey letter is what tipped the election. You know, a couple of weeks right before um uh, we voted in 2016. James Comey comes out with this letter, says Hillary Clinton's emails are an issue again. And that is what tipped the election. That's what everyone kind of, even today, if you read articles like New York Times, Wall Street Journal, like like that's kind of the agreed upon uh, cause and effect. Comey letter was the main factor driving that that outcome. And my argument is that there's, that, that that's number one, I don't think that that's, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I, I'm kind of like trying to say this thing that we all agree is is the case. I think it's actually a mystery. Um, I really don't think the Comey letter makes a lot of sense. Um, and then alternatively, I, I do think that there's a much more likely outcome, which is advertising, specifically digital mm-hmm. advertising. 
and digital strategies, which is back to your question of like, why, uh, what, what would I want to be like, if I could go back in 2016, where would I want to be a fly in the wall? It's on the digital strategy teams. So um, yeah, like, I, I just want to be clear, like, I, I, I I'll say it this way. There's, have you ever heard of um, Amos Tversky or Daniel Kahneman? Daniel Kahneman, like, like one guy won a Nobel Prize. Other ones, like a MacArthur genius. Um, yeah, these guys are are behave, created this thing called behavioral economics. Um, there's another book related to it called Predictably Irrational that was really popular a little while ago. But uh, essentially, a lot of this comes down to why do people make the decisions that we make? Um, mm. Why do we see the world the way we see the world? Um, and one of the big ideas that they have is that when people, uh, when, when a person can't imagine a chain of events leading to a certain outcome, we think that that outcome is impossible. Mm. And my argument is there was a chain of events that happened in 2016 that most people can't envision the chain of events. And so I just want to share what I, what I know is at least a plausible chain of events. I can't guarantee you it's what happened. Like it was the driving factor, but I can at least lay out, you know, two different chains of events and, you know, let people decide like what sounds more reasonable. And that, that's kind of my goal. That makes sense. So essentially you're, you're trying to zig whenever the narrative is zagging and kind of you are pointing to maybe some other conclusion. Is there any specific piece of evidence or something that you stumbled upon that led you to think that it was digital marketing instead of maybe they sent out more flyers or maybe it was the Comey files? What was the thing that led you down that path? Uh, the thing, what was the thing that led me down that path? So the thing that started it. So I, let, let's also just like start by putting our cards on the table. Um, I was, I'm against Trump. I hate Trump. Yeah. And to be a guy writing a book about how great his team did, I find really kind of funny, but the, the yeah. dude won. And um, let, let me put my cards on the table. Please. I, 2016, I did not vote, period. I, I've never voted, but I, I also do not like Trump. I liked him a little bit at the beginning because he's funny as shit. But yeah. now I, I, really, I really don't like Trump. But I think it's great that, by the way, it's great you put your cards on the table because now your story is way more credible, by the way, because you dislike the guy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the, when you're like, what started this whole thing? Uh, so I worked briefly for a micro-targeted, like a, a digital advertising firm. Okay. And what started this was uh, I watched Bill Maher, who's very <laughs> anti-Trump. And he had a guest on his show that said, uh, Trump hired this digital marketing team called Cambridge Analytica to hack Facebook mm. and micro-target people. And I thought that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard because I understand how this stuff works. Uh, that's like, you know, hiring Navy SEALs to bust into McDonald's to steal a Big Mac. Like, why would you do that? You could just walk in the front door and give them three bucks and they'll give you a Big Mac. Like the idea of hacking Facebook to micro-target people, it's exactly, that's what Facebook sells. So if people are out there making this argument that, uh, Cambridge Analytica hacked Facebook to micro-target people. I'm like, they, they clearly do not understand even the most basic thing. Like Facebook sells micro-targeted advertising as much as McDonald's sells Big Macs. Like, <laughs> like you don't need to hack these people. Like they, they, all you have to do is show up with money and they'll take it. Like it's, it's really simple. Uh, so that was kind of the thing that got me going. Um, and then once I started looking into it, um, I was just 
frankly, shocked by the public statements made by uh, the two campaigns. Uh, as somebody who, again, I, I want to just kind of put out this chain of events. Um, and, and let me just, what other just kind of, I have a lot of little anecdotes that I'll try to pepper in because, uh, so Chris, you were saying you, you, you write software for a living uh, as yeah. a day job. So, so you've written code before. I've written code before. Most people uh, haven't written code before. Um, so I, I want to try to like make sure that the story is accessible to everybody. So um, one thing that I always like to do to try to understand where we are today is to look back historically. Uh, and so and just to kind of like validate that no one here is a moron. Uh, this is just really out there stuff. Uh, mind expanding things. So uh, over a hundred years ago, the Wright brothers invented flight. Uh, I read a great biography of these guys and looking at what happened with them and the story of flight, I think is it's somewhat indicative and, and telling around the story that we're about to get into around digital advertising. So the story of the Wright brothers is, you know, they go to some sand dunes in North Carolina. They fly eh, maybe 10 seconds, 15 seconds. And then they go back to where they're from, Dayton, Ohio. And they went from like 10 seconds, like 10 minutes of flight in this field called Huffman Prairie. I actually visited the place. It's pretty cool. It's just a field, but just to know like literally that's the birthplace of flight is mind blowing. That's crazy. And the thing about Huffman Prairie is it's, it's on a train line between downtown Dayton and downtown Columbus, Ohio. And so as the Wright brothers are flying for like a couple minutes at a time in whatever, 1902, 1903, 1904, people on the train see this and they don't believe their eyes. Like, like, like literally like they're in a bar and they're like talking one. And I'm like, yo, Chris, did you see those Wright brothers fly? You're like, yeah, right. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> and it took years for society to accept and appreciate and understand. It took like five years before humanity recognized their accomplishment. And back to the uh, Kahneman, um, Daniel Kahneman, almost Tversky quote, when people can't imagine a chain of events leading to a certain outcome, they think the outcome is impossible. You and I, you know, today in modern life, we get this idea that like airplanes, they've got some thrust that pushes them forward. They've got some lift from their wings and you put it all together and they take off. We can imagine the chain of events leading to an airplane flying. And so we accept it. And it's not like those people were morons. They just couldn't imagine the chain of events. So I really, really want to hit on like the, the key here, thing here is you have to put together a couple, like a string of events, a, a number of different pieces, and then everything kind of comes together. So it's a long way of saying back to your question, how did, I, how did this whole thing start? It started with you know, people hacking Facebook to, to, to get micro-targeted ads, which makes no sense. Um, and then starting to look at what the two teams, the two digital advertising teams, digital media teams, I should say, were, were, were saying. And as somebody who understands what they were saying, I, I'm going to argue that Clinton's team brought a knife to a gunfight. Um, yeah. One of the, I, you were talking about background earlier. So at my background, I have an electrical engineering degree. I have a business degree. And in business school, one of the most common narratives is there's a market there's a way things work in the market. There's established players in the market. They know how everything works and they just do it over and over year after year. And then something changes in the market and they don't adapt because they know how everything works, except it isn't how things works. It's how they used to work. And then they get their ass handed to them. And in many ways, that seems to be what happened to the Clinton team. Uh, yeah. So 
just to simplify, and I again, like I don't know anything inside. I only know public statements. So from everything I could tell from public statements, the person who ran Clinton's digital media strategy was a guy named Teddy Goff, um, and the guy who ran Clinton's or Trump's team was Alexander Nix from Cambridge Analytica. Um, but I realized I, I'm kind of jumping into the solution. I still want to like hammer home why I think the Comey letters that so. I'll let you edit this, but like, Hey, can, can, can we, can we just sure. jump into one thing real quick? Because you really struck a chord with me yep. and that is, I thought the same thing at being, I'm a coder, right. Yep. And hearing Cambridge Analytica hack Facebook, I thought, holy shit. Right. Because we know these huge tech companies, Facebook, Google, Microsoft, yada, yada. I mean, their security teams, I mean, this is bulletproof. So if you were able to get access, get admin access into Facebook's database or something like this, I mean, this would be the biggest breach in history. This is billions of people, not millions, billions. Yeah. And so I, I was I was thinking the same thing. I was like, oh, boy, I got to Google, Google, Google. But you're right. You hit it on the head. They didn't hack anything. Facebook sales. If you want to advertise, and I may be jumping, if you want to advertise my business to a 42-year-old mom with three kids yep. and two of them play soccer and yep. her favorite color is purple. Yep. Facebook facilitates this. This is Facebook's like key market. This is what they provide to their customers is this stuff. And as so could you, just as, shed a, yeah. could you just shed a little light on what the heck was Cam- Cambridge Analytica? Because there was a lot of weird stuff in the media. So I, I can't. Um, I can't. I, I didn't work for Cambridge Analytica. I, I don't know any more than than what's it, that I've picked up from the media. Um, I can tell you that Cambridge Analytica had a narrative that was very technical that we're going to get into. I'm going to simplify and make accessible to anyone who's interested. That Clinton's team also had a narrative, and I'll break that down. But exactly which players did what? How? Like, I, I, you have to be in the room, and I wasn't in the room. Um, yeah. before we get into the, this, um, like what I think happened, I just want to like unpack why I think the, the status quo narrative, the Comey letter makes no sense. So, cause I, cause before you, we even get into like, what's the answer to the mystery? Like we have to establish that the mystery exists because most people still think that the Comey letter is, is the tipping point. That's James Comey writes to Congress as Clinton's emails are under investigation and, you know, that, that's what happened. So, so let, let, let's just back up for a sec. So the fact of the matter is Clinton was leading in the polls up, you know, up through October-ish. Um, Comey letter comes out at the end of October and then Clinton starts to tank. Trump, you know, starts to go up and ultimately Trump wins. Exit polls show that the thing that drove that outcome was swing voters in swing states. That when they interviewed the, the at the exit polls, people that decided in like the last week typically would have broken 50-50 for Trump, uh, Trump and Clinton, but they broke like disproportionately for Trump. So the you know, if you want to believe that the Comey letter is the driving factor, what you're saying is there is this media narrative about Clinton that started over a year and a half before the election. Like it was like March. Mm-hmm. Um, 2015, like roughly, I think, when the Comey letter came out. So people were hearing about Clinton's emails for months. And these few people inside in the last week, they heard about the same story over and over and over for months. Not to mention, as all, we all heard, Trump kept having these chants of lock her up. Even if you don't care at all about politics, I'm sure that you heard about lock her up, which was about the emails. Yeah. 
So Comey, Comey, like FBI is looking at her emails. Everyone's talking about her emails. And you're telling me that that argue, like in order to believe that, that, that the Comey letter mattered, you're telling me that for, let's just simplify and call it over a year, these persuadable, influenceable swing voters heard that message. It never resonated. And then they heard mm. the same message again. And this time they're like, yep, that, that's it. This, that, that, now Trump gets my vote. I don't want to vote for Clinton. It, it just doesn't make sense. Especially, and this is the key thing with when we get into the advertising piece, when you start to look into who these swing voters are, each of them cares about something different. So you were just kind of giving an example about the soccer mom. The soccer mom cares about education and the nurse cares about health care and like the coal workers care about, you know, less uh, environmental protections. And like, like each of these persuadable people has something that they really care about. And almost by definition, they don't all care about the same thing. They don't all care about Clinton's emails and her trustworthiness. And so the idea that a single, like, if you believe the Comey letter, what you're saying is I accepted the idea, the chain of events that I'm going to send one message to all these very, very different people. And they're all going to buy that message. It just doesn't make sense. Um, And my argument is that micro-targeted advertising did a much, much better job of delivering personalized messages to each of these groups. All the soccer moms hear about education, all the nurses hear about healthcare and that it's, that difference of approach that, and we'll get into like the, the mechanics of it, but the, the, these tailored messages uh, in the final days of the election, literally just the last couple of weeks, that that's a much more likely reason that swing voters swung for Trump uh, so much more strongly than they'd ever broken for any presidential candidate before. I guess to push back on the Comey letters. So I think it was like a rumor. I think and and please correct me where I'm wrong on any of this because I was like I said I didn't vote. Uh, I think it was like a rumor. It's like oh Hillary, you know, dirty Hillary. She got these emails, got these emails, and so maybe a lot of people are like, huh, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe. And then the Comey letter comes out, and it's like, oh, we knew it, oh, we knew it. And so wouldn't that like push them more? It's like, oh, it was just a rumor. Now it's true. So she's definitely a piece of shit. Sure, um, ish. So like, what you're saying is we're not introducing a new factor. We're taking a factor that's, that's loud and making it louder. And I'm sure mm. that there are people that care about trustworthiness of candidates and they were on the fence with her. And I'm sure that for some of them, trustworthiness is a big deal and the Comey letter was the tipping point. And, and that's what you're saying. Like, we're, we're going to take this theme, we're going to amplify it. This thing that we thought was important is now even more important. I completely agree. My argument though is that that's not going to be the same for everyone. That You're right. That there's... I mean, even now, like, so we just finished the 2022, and obviously, like, I'm into politics. We just finished the 2022 uh, election. You know, th- one of the things that they kept talking about is like, what are what are voters' top political uh, priority? Some people it was crime. Some people it was democracy. Some people it was abortion. Like, so again, like, it's not news. It shouldn't be news to anybody who, if anyone's listening to this right now, they clearly care enough about politics. That, yeah. that that this is interesting. So it shouldn't be news that like abortion was a major factor in the 2022 election for many people, not everyone, but for many, you know, that yeah. crime was a major factor for some people. Not And like, and those are, I'm just going to divide the electorate into those two camps, but there, we, we all know that there's a lot more than just two camps. Yeah. And also wasn't there kind of a subsequent, this or the subsequent Trump scandal was the grabber by the pussy. 
Didn't that come out right before the election that, that, as well? That was right. That was pre-Comey letter. But yeah, that, oh, okay. that also uh, happened. But again, yeah. um, grab her by the pussy, Comey letter, Clinton's emails. The, the, the key thing I would push on is, you know, there's different audiences that want to hear different messages, period. Yeah. Um, and if you're, if you're saying here's one narrative, like a sledgehammer, that's going to have an effect, like we we, literally, you could just apply that to today to 2022 with abortion or, or crime. Like, like, like there's not, there's never been, and I don't think there ever will be a single narrative. I mean, maybe if you want to go with nine 11, like that, that really disproportionately drives everybody, uh, or whatever. It, It was just, um, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor yesterday. So like. Like that was another uniting thing, but it, it's, it's the exception. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I, I at least think the idea that one message would so strongly affect such disparate people, um, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, the, another kind of like detail I'll also throw out just more for the audience than anything else is if you were listening to this, the, your entire intuition, um, you should throw out the window in many ways. Because if you're listening to this, you care about politics. You heard politics, you didn't hear, you know, basketball or something, and you still stuck around. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so most people in this country have firm opinions. Most people are like a Republican or a Democrat, or they're like you, they just don't vote, they don't care. That's fine. Like, there is a very, very, very small subset of folks that care a little, but not a lot <laughs> that are, are going to vote, but they're actually like, don't really pay that much attention. Like they're, they're, they're going to, and it's like, let like 90% at least of voters like have firm opinions. So, you know, if you have 10 friends, maybe like nine of those 10 friends are going to like have their, their, their firm opinion. It, it's a, we're, we're, and everything that I'm talking about here is pollsters fail to predict Trump's victory the data, the exit polling data shows that it was swing voters in swing states. And what happened with these like unicorns essentially that are floating around the country? Like, like what happened yeah. with those people? And that, that, that's really what we're trying to, to, to focus on. And most of us don't know unicorns. Most of us don't know swing voters in swing states because they're so few yeah. and far between. I, I think your your case is so compelling, by the way. I, I I love the way you break it down. And by the way, also, I didn't vote, but maybe if Trump or Hillary would have said the right thing, I would have voted. I could have been a swing voter. Just, I guess, none of them uh, really spoke to me if they would have touched all the right subjects, maybe. Or, um, But so essentially what you're saying is, hey, typically in, in politics, we use these sledgehammers. And an example of a yep. sledgehammer is the Comey files. It says, Oh, bad Hillary. Boom. Or grab her by the pussy. Boom. Or all of these things. And what you're saying is that, hey, everybody's different. While that sledgehammer may sway a couple people, but everybody cares about different things, which is a brilliant point. And it's it's true. It's common sense if you think about it. That's why it's such a good point. So what you're saying is now we have these things called micro-targeted ads. And this kind of can help facilitate more granular targeting. Can Correct. you kind of dive into that? What is a micro-targeted ad and have I ever seen one? Wonderful question. I love, what is a micro-targeted ad and have I ever seen one? 
yes, you have seen a micro-targeted ad because you're talking to me on a digital platform. Um, so I assume that you have, you, you've watched, you've read anything, any content media online at all. Yeah. So then therefore you've seen that. Um, that's a great question. I guess some people wouldn't even know. Um, one of the kind of cringe moments for me as I was working on the story, uh, Sheryl Sandberg, I think she left Facebook, but while she was at Facebook, she was doing an interview with NPR um, and she goes, NPR, you guys sell ads. Facebook, we sell ads. It's all ads. It's all the same. And it's like, you're so full of shit because <laughs> Sheryl Sandberg, you do not go into your customer to Coca-Cola, Nike, McDonald's, whoever, and say, you want to advertise with NPR? You can do that. You can advertise with us. It's all good. It's just an audience. Like, not in the least. That These are... Like, I'll just keep coming back to the simple metaphor, knife to a gunfight. It is a world of difference. So um, just to be really clear, like, if, you, if you're listening to this, maybe you're driving around uh, and you'll see, like, an advertisement on a billboard on the side of a highway. That's, that's a conventional ad. That's the ads that we all grew up with. Or you, maybe you're like going to flip through a magazine. And those ads, back to the sledgehammer idea, th- th- that's just a sledgehammer. Like you're, you're sending a message, the, the advertiser, the marketer is sending a message out into the world. They have no feedback on uh, who they're messaging really. Like I know I'm messaging New York Times subscribers, but, or, you know, or, or people that drive on I-5. Uh, or you know I ninety five or whatever, but like who outside of Charlottesville? Who who knows, right? Like, um, yeah. but you have so little information about who your audience is is and how they react to that message. Like those two key ideas: who's the audience and what's the performance of the, of the marketing. By contrast, micro target advertising, you're able to pinpoint uh, down to like as as few as a couple hundred individuals who your audience is, and you can measure the performance of your advertising. It's completely different. If we put up an ad, listen to the Bang 2-3 podcast alongside a highway, we have no idea how that performed. If we send out that same ad through Facebook to a thousand people, we can measure that, you know, dudes love this, chicks hate it. And, you know, or at least the message (laughs) that we put forward in that specific content. It's just a, a very, very different world. Um, since most people don't deal with like the technology under the scenes, I, I, I have a little metaphor called like the food court um, that uh, might make, make it a little bit more accessible. So we're in America, love America. Uh, yes. let's, let's think about going to the mall. Uh, you know, you, you know, every mall has a food court, uh, old movie mall rats all about the food court. So you go to the, if you think about a food court, it's got the, the Italian pizza, it's got the burgers, it's got like the Panda Express Chinese, it's got like the Taco Bell Mexican, it's got, it's got everything. So now, Chris, uh, I'm going to tell you about two marketers whose job is to get people to go to the food court. So we've got Carl, the conventional marketer, and we've got Isaac, the ideal micro-targeting marketer. And so how does, what does this look like? So Carl... This, this conventional marketer, Carl, he's got a stack of flyers. Paper's not free. He has to print those things. That, that's expensive. And he runs around frantically. Anybody in the mall just sticks a flyer in their face. He's like, hey, whatever. I'm going to give you Taco Bell. I'm going to give you uh, Sabaro's Pizza. Like, I'm just, at the end of the day, this dude is exhausted. He spent a ton of money on flyers. And very, very few people who actually gave a flyer to went to the food court. 
Mm-hmm. That is conventional a- advertising. That is the world that you and I grew up in pre-internet. Now let's go to Isaac, the ideal marketer who does something pretty darn close to micro-targeted advertising. Isaac has a stack of flyers. They also just as expensive as, as Carl's. Like it's still, you got to get you know this message across. But Isaac doesn't run around at all. He just looks through the crowd and he sees you. Chris, bam. And he goes and he hands you a flyer and you go, damn, I love tacos. I'm going to like walk into Taco Bell. And then you watch him walk over and he sees some other woman. And, you know, there's a, a big group of people, but he picks out this one woman, hands her a flyer. She goes, this is great. And she starts walking towards the food court. And you sit down at Taco Bell, you got your chalupa, you're super happy. And you figure, oh, he must have given her a Taco Bell too. Like this guy clearly gives out Taco Bell ads. No, no, he gave her a Sabaro's pizza ad. Because he, he had the data to know that you are into Mexican food and she's into pizza. And whatever message he has to match to the audience to get them to take the action that he wants to get you to go into his food court, that, that's how this works. So micro-targeted advertising, ideal advertising, we, we, we recognize that most people aren't persuadable. We find the few people that are persuadable. We figure out exactly what message is going to resonate with them to get them to take the action that we want them to take, to, to in this case, go to the food court. And we don't waste time, money, or energy on everyone else. And let's just change from the food court to politics. Clinton and Trump. Trump is like, you know, I care about coal. I'm only going to say, I'm going to find people that care about coal. I'm going to get them, you know, Mm. the coal messages. I care, like, I don't remember what his deal was back then. Like, I, I, I don't care about political correctness. People feel like it's too oppressive. Like, I'm going to get them a message about, like, not being politically correct. You know, Trump's team in many ways took that exact approach and Clinton's team was much, much more (laughs) like a conventional advertiser. Um, They, as far as I could tell, they were essentially uh, all about spam. So they kind of took this middle of the road approach where they leveraged uh, social media messaging. So I used to live in California uh, they recognize that folks in California are generally not important because like the, the state always goes Democrat. It's not important, but we might know people in Wisconsin or Ohio or Florida or other mm-hmm. swing states. So I could like text my friends or I could send them messages on Facebook and basically spam my friends and say, Hey friends, you know, you should care about, you know, wh- whatever I think you might care about, but you know, spam is not very persuasive. It's better than nothing, but, uh, I'm kind of jumping around a lot here, mm-hmm. but uh, the, the big idea with the the food court metaphor and how it applies to the, these political elections is conventional advertising. It's a spray and pray approach, very expensive, not measurable, not targeted or barely targeted. <laughs> and it, it's just a huge waste of money in many ways compared to micro targeted advertising, which is much, much more narrow and, measurably effective. And that, that I think is, is a key part is that closed loop where I can find Chris, right? Yeah. And so I know this is audio, but folks, he's wearing a red shirt, spoiler alert. Yes. And I could say, I think that people with red shirts are really into Taco Bell. I'm going to test it out with Chris. Ding. I measured, he went into Taco Bell and I'm going to find five other folks that have red shirts and give them that same message. It's going to work. Quick aside, you can delete this, but I will say, like, I, I there's a lot of narratives, and I haven't told the story in a while, so I, uh, I'm hoping that we can stitch this together in a way 
that because I keep kind of jumping ahead. Um, no, oh, jump. Oh. Let's jump. Yep. So what? I, I think my initial question is still kind of is is fascinating me more the the more you talk because <laughs> the fly on the wall thing because it seems like it's a no freaking brainer. Let's say I were to talk to you. I was like, hey, Michael, uh, I'm running a campaign, dude, and I need to. I need the most effective way to target my voters or to target the people that, that are going to swing. Yep. And I was like, how I, we want to use digital. We're not freaking doing newspapers. It's not 1940. Wh- how would I do that? You just being a technologist, right? You're not, I mean, well, I guess you did work for a digital ad uh, firm, uh, but you're not like some PhD in digital advertising. Even you would say, listen, Miss Clinton, you need to target your audience because the uh, yep. the guy the guy or girl in California who lives on the beach may worry about the environment, but maybe the guy or girl in California who works in a coal mine or something like that yep. may worry about something else. Yep. So even you, so I I'm trying to figure out like where's the disconnect here? It seems like such a dumb decision. Um, great point, and let's also be really clear that it's. Uh, 2022 right now. We're talking about something yeah. that happened in 2016, but really the strategy yeah. was developed like 2014, 2015. Um, and for reference... Uh, really good point, by the way. Really good point. And for reference, um, I had a startup. Uh, I, I, I worked on a bunch of different startup ideas. Um, I had a startup in 2011 uh, that was basically like Uber and Lyft, but for buses. And one of the biggest points of pushback that I got in 2011 was most people don't have smartphones. Uh, it was like 30% yeah. market penetration of iPhone and, and, and Android. And, That's hilarious. Yeah. And one of the biggest things people kept saying to me is like, you're basing your entire business on the whole world having smartphones, but most people don't have smartphones. That sounds really stupid. And I was like, I, if you look at the trends, like there's a really good be- reason to believe that, you know, phones are going to like your, your flip phone's going to die and when it comes t- in a couple of years and when it comes time to buy your next phone, more likely than not, people are going to be switching from flip phones to smartphones. And so technology, like looking back, um, a lot of stuff in 2020 hindsight is super obvious, but at the time, like it's not at all obvious. Um, and so like you're saying, um, you know, why wouldn't you use digital advertising? And it's not, well, there's, there's two pieces to it. So one piece is uh, prioritization. So we're not saying that Clinton's team only did television ads and that Trump's team only did digital ads and never the twain shall meet. It's not that simple. But it's, it's much more about Clinton had a, a, you know, a main strategy and then you know, put a little bit of effort in some other places. And then Trump, in my opinion, did, did kind of had put effort and had a different strategy. That, that's the whole point, uh, number one. Number two, uh, there's a huge implementation challenge. Um, it's one thing to say uh, that there's surfers in California or Louisiana. I guess there's not that good waves in the Bay or in the Gulf, but whatever. No, um, no. <laughs> you know, it, it's one thing to, to, to think about this at kind of like the 10,000 foot high level. But when you get down to what's the message that we send people that live by the coasts, by any body of water, it, it becomes a lot harder. So, so there, and that actually, 
I'll, I'll da- leave that one dangling. That's a really interesting detail that Trump uh, or that my, the company I had worked for briefly um, solved. So let, let's get, let's break down the Clinton approach. Let's break down the Trump approach and, and come back to this big idea. Uh, and I'll, I'll, we should hit this a couple times in, in the podcast. Come back to the big idea. Why do the pollsters fail to predict Trump's victory? You know, exit polls as a fact show that it was swing voters in swing states. So what messages were swing voters in swing states getting? You know, the journalists were telling them one story about the Comey letter. Clinton and Trump were messaging folks as well. Um, and I think that it was the Trump team that in the different strategies, I think Trump's strategy was really special um, and effective. But just as importantly, though, is what that it was different from Clinton's. Uh, and I, that, that amazes me that there's not been a strong media narrative about the difference. Because to me, when I think about this question, you know, why did Clinton lose and accepting the narrative of the Comey letter, it's like saying, you know, Clinton got struck by lightning. Like no one saw that coming. That sucks. <laughs> like not, I mean, can you learn anything that you got struck by lightning? No. Uh, if you made a strategic mistake, if you just, you know, didn't understand the way the game football is played, <laughs> and instead of running around like a, like a chicken with its head cut off up and down the field, you actually went to the end zone to catch the football, like, like that, that's a huge learning point. And I, and I think that th- that's why I find the story so interesting. Um, so what was, in my opinion, Clinton's mistake? Clinton's mistake was this very, very classic mistake of the world changed and we didn't realize. Mm. Um, and so, like, I'm just going to oversimplify. There's a bunch of different people working on Clinton's digital media strategy, a bunch on Trump's media strategy. But for Clinton, like, I don't know who exactly did what, but I'll just simplify and say the person I saw speak the most about Clinton's digital media strategy was the head of digital media, this guy named Teddy Goff, uh, G-O-F-F. And Teddy Goff uh, ran digital media for Obama in 08. Did it again in 2012. This guy is a friggin' rock star. He understands digital. And in 2008, what he figured out was, holy Moses, we can get people to send messages to their friends via Facebook for free because Facebook doesn't charge. Like, if you remember, it used to be 10 cents a text message. That was a big expensive thing. <laughs> but we can now send messages to Facebook for free, and people trust. And one of his quotes that I, I picked from you know one of his talks was, "People don't trust advertising, but they trust their friends." And, mm. you know, in order to persuade somebody to take an action, uh, there, it's like a, there's a chain of events. You need, you know, somebody to convey a message and who that, ought, that message uh, bearer is does have an effect. So he's not, he's not crazy. He's not wrong. Like, yeah, I definitely trust my buddies more than I trust, you know, a random person on the street. Um, but the world of advertising had changed between 2008 and 2016. And from everything I've seen, Teddy Goff never recognized that change. And so his 2016 strategy was essentially the same as for ours, I could tell from what he did in 2008 and 2012. Um, and the, you know, the, 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 one of the quotes of his, and I'll paraphrase, but it was basically like, elections used to be about the 2% of swing voters in Ohio, winning over the hearts of minds of swing voters, 2% of swing voters in Ohio, but now it's about winning over the whole country. So this way, even if you're in California, you'll influence, you know, like, like a knock-on effect, your, your friends, mm. maybe a couple of which happen to be those swing voters in Ohio. So that was his, his kind of spray and pray, spammy approach. Um, it wasn't as, uh, his approach to digital media, it wasn't as bad as like, let's just put billboards up on highways. 
Um, but it, there was no sophistication. I'll, I'll say that for sure. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me pause there for a sec on the Clinton side, then we'll get into the, the Trump mm-hmm. side. Yeah, I, I, I mean, it, it sounds about right. I guess it, to me, the way I, I'm viewing the problem as you're setting it up is that uh, one side tried to get people to the polls and vote for them, right? So Trump tried to get swing voters to the poll to vote for them. And the other side, I guess, took a more indirect approach, which is trying to get rock solid Democrats to tell their friends to go and vote for them. Is that right? Uh Ish. I, both sides want everyone to vote for them. So Clinton wants Democrats and swing voters. Trump wants Republicans and swing voters. Um, it's the issue is just swing voters swung for Trump. Swing voters yeah. in swing states swung for Trump, and so Clinton's way of getting to those folks was to give their friend um, was to give their friends tools. So like one of the uh, talks I saw Teddy Goff give. It's on YouTube. Last I checked. Uh, he was at like a general assembly meetup and he goes, someone asks, you know, what's some of the coolest stuff that you guys are building today? And he goes, let me tell you, we have this amazing tool we're building uh, around customized SMSs. So if you live in California and you know someone who might be a swing voter in Ohio, uh, we're going to give you this great tool that gives you some like marketing copy, essentially, like a message to share with your friend. And you can even tweak the wording to like, you know, before you send it on to your friend. And as somebody who's worked in digital advertising, very briefly, like I, I, like I, let me, let me be clear. It was only four months, but I I got the big idea. Um, You, one of the worst possible things that you can do uh, if you're trying to persuade an audience is to add customization. Customization is noise. My goal is to match a message to an audience, and I want my message to be as consistent as possible. Uh, back to like, let's just go back to the food court for a sec. Let's say I'm right. Uh, people's red shirts love Taco Bell. Uh, I don't know if they, it's that they love Taco Bell or if they love like the specific picture of this taco or this burrito or whatever. Like, like if I send you a message, Chris, because you're wearing a red shirt, and then I send a slightly different message to a bunch of other people with red shirts that I, I've basically ruined my science experiment. Like you don't want yeah. variation. <laughs> you, you want, I want to send one message. I want to know that it like works 22% of the time. And then I want to deploy it at scale. I don't want to send one message and then kind of keep changing it. Like every time you, you add customization, every time you add tweaking, uh, you essentially break um, the mass persuasion tool that you're trying to create. Does that mm. make sense? No, no, that does make sense. Uh, it's just so fascinating how uh, I, I don't know if Americans know this. I think a lot of us do, but how there's so much money, power, and smart ass people get in a room, and their whole goal is to manipulate you to their benefit. <laughs> how you know, crazy! I so I, it's a great it's a great theory. So let, let's just unpack that for a sec. So smart ass people get in a room and try to manipulate you to their benefit. I think that that's what you just said. I think a lot of people are nodding their heads at. And one of the takeaways I'd say from this story is that's actually not the case. It's mm. that th- these people are in a room and all they care about is getting their pa- their candidate into office. Like 
Like they don't, no one give, gives two shits about manipulating you. All they want is Clinton to be president. Yeah. yeah. Um, and part of that, the, the sophisticated people, the smart people, the people that, that are effective recognize that mind control doesn't work. Most people have a firm opinion. Most people are not influenceable, persuadable, um, manipulatable. Um, and so it's, it's easy to, to demonize and to say like, like smart people are in a room trying to, to manipulate you, but it's more like smart people are in a room and they figured out that they don't give two shits about you, that they don't want to waste a single <laughs> penny of marketing dollars on you, but they found out your neighbor three houses down is persuadable and they're going to just nail that person with ads um, and the ads yeah. that are most effective. Yeah, I think that's a good distinction. And, and, and you're right, because there's smart ass people in Nike right now trying to manipulate you to get you to do what you uh, to what they want, which is just buy shoes. Yep. And you're, you're right. They, they don't give a shit about you. They just want your doggone money. Yep. Just like these people. They, they just want their candidate in office. They want their shiny corner office in the White House and their prestigious title. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that is a good, good distinction. And, and- I guess all advertising is that right. Manipulating people to get what they want. <laughs> At its worst, you could say it's manipulating people. At its best, you could say it's solving people's problems. Like I, oh, I, I, love I I'm it. a nurse. I love it. I'm a nurse, right? Like, like, like theoretically, if I'm a nurse and I yeah. really care about healthcare, and I want, like, or better yet, like much, much simpler, I'm a millennial. I'm, I'm 22 years old. I recognize I'm going to be around for a long time. Climate change is a huge freaking problem. I, n- crime, COVID, all this stuff is temporary. CO2 is the only thing I, is the thing I care about most. I, I have a really important problem. I'm trying to figure out which of these two candidates, <clears throat> and it's really unfortunate. It's a whole sidebar about like that we only have two candidates to choose from. But yeah. among these two candidates, which of these two is going to best serve my goals of like reducing CO2 so that like, you know, I don't have to breathe burning smoke fires, you know, the rest of my life. And yeah, the so, advertisers so are like, oh, let me solve that problem for you. Here is a shiny looking yeah. candidate that cares tons about the environment, has all these amazing policies that's going to solve your problems. Like, like it, it's, yeah, it, it's very easy to, to think to the negative, but it, it, I'm a parent. We were talking earlier about like some of my kids. Uh, one of my favorite, one of my buddies who has kids, uh, one of my favorite lines of his is, shut up and take my money. Like that, that thing just chilled out my, my, my child. It gives me like a break for an hour and it's like not, you know, stupid, mindless Netflix, like shut up and take my money. Like, like that, that's the extreme yeah. good. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to have a balanced argument and not throw, say all advertisers are bad or something. There's definitely times, I mean, even with my kid, as I'm thinking about this, like where she's been sick and it's like, oh my God, like, <laughs> you know, this specific tool sucks the snot out of her nose so she can breathe because she couldn't breathe. And I was like, you know shut up and take my money. Like, thank you advertiser yeah. for, for letting me know that like there's this tool out there for little children. Yeah, you're right. So back, back to the micro targeting, it's like, Please. they are saying, so for example, Trump or let's, yeah, let's just say Trump is he, let's say, let's say he worries, he cares about climate change. And so maybe to the people on the coast, I know you're laughing, <laughs> well, he doesn't, like, so maybe, but the opposite, he, he cares about, um, anti-political correctness. He, he thinks climate change is a joke. So let, 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 let's, let's keep doing uh, right. examples, but let's try to keep them grounded so people can follow more easily. Cause there's a lot well, of no, complication. Let, but, let's, let's live in a fantasy land where he didn't grab anybody by the pussy. Um, <laughs> so uh, 
let's say that Trump Trump cares about oil. Okay. Perfect. And so, right, this is kind of a core thing. This is a fact. He cares about oil. Yep. He wants to bolster oil production. All right. This is a fact. So maybe he has two people. So to the person who works in the oil industry, he'll say, hey, I care about oil. I'm bringing back all kinds of jobs. He'll show, boom, to you, you work in the oil industry, you get this ad. Exactly. Maybe to the person who is struggling is going to say, hey, solar power is going gonna, is gonna to raise your energy bill. I care about oil, so therefore your energy bill is going to go down. Yep. Same thing, but he targets them in different ways. Is this exactly. kind of how he... Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And so let's, let's yeah. get into the... So before we were saying like, Theoretically, you could do that, but how do you actually do that? What did, what did Trump's team say that they actually did? Uh, but yeah. but you, you, you nailed it with, you know, one person gets an oil message, another person gets a, you know, reduced cost message, like, mm-hmm. but, oh, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Um, but everybody has a different message. So, so here, here's where stuff gets absolutely insane, in my opinion. Um, two things. So like I said, Teddy Goff, Hillary Clinton's digital media manager, used the same um, strategy from 2008 and 2012 in 2016. So what changed? Like why, why, why I'm arguing that something changed. What changed? Um, what changed, in my opinion, that people don't appreciate and I would love for people to appreciate is it became very easy to identify persuadable voters online between the 2012 and 2016 election. And there's two uh, factors that, that drove that. Um, so have you ever heard of the voter file? Does that mean anything to you? No. Great. So let's talk about the voter file and let's talk about um, onboarding data, which is yes. a fancy term that doesn't mean, like I'll, I'll get into that too. So the, the, those are the two pieces. Um, so, do you remember the twenty? Uh, the, sorry, the two thousand Bush versus Gore election. Oh yeah, excellent. So, when I think about that election, I think about like that guy with the hanging chad looking at the 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 voter uh, somebody's <laughs> vote ballot through the light, like just absolute chaos. One of the things that happened after the two thousand election was the whole country, like both Democrats and Republicans, agreed. Our voting system is messed up. We got to do better than hanging chads and all this stuff. We, we need to standardize mm-hmm. a lot of um, the, the voting election infrastructure. And up until that point, um, there was actually very little public data on voters. It was not standardized. It was not accessible. So I, I found like a quote, I want to say from Abraham Lincoln saying like, you know, I want to appeal to voters, but I don't know who they are or where they live or anything like that. This is, this is really hard. So like politicians, since at least Abraham Lincoln have said, I wish I knew who my voters were and where they lived and how to access them. Um, And one of the outcomes of this 2000 election was a couple of years later, there was this thing in uh, 2002 called the help America vote act, H A V A HAVA and the help America vote act, uh, did a bunch of changes, including standardizing uh, voter rolls. They created this thing called the voter file. And now it's essentially public information, the name and address of every voter in the country. Not to mention uh, 
like what party they're affiliated with and the dates on which they voted. They won't say who you voted for, <laughs> but it almost doesn't matter. But like, so Chris, uh, you know, you didn't vote. You said in the last election, I did. I was living in California. So if you want to, you can go look me up, Michael V and in California and find out the date that I voted. It's public data. And you can find out by home address when uh, of where I was living at the time as well. This is all public data. This is crazy. You know how this could be dangerous is I could look up my neighbor and be like, wait a minute, you dirty Republican, what are you doing? You know, stuff like that, man. That is nuts. Yep. So by making it public, were they, they were trying to serve the candidates is what you were saying? I, am, I can't be in the heads of the politicians back in 2002. Um, no. All I know is that this change happened. That like the, the spark for the Help America Vote Act uh, was, seems to have been the, all the chaos of the 2000 presidential election. Um, as with many bills, like lots of people have ideas and pet projects and stuff gets packed in. I don't know, I don't know who was thinking about this or like how any of this stuff worked back then. But I, all I know is that you know, the, the key part for our story about 2016 is what changed and a huge, super duper duper important change was HAVA, Help America Vote Act, making public the name and, and address of all these and a uh, vote on which people, the date on which people voted, making that, all that data public. If that data wasn't public, the, like, the strategy that Trump's team, Cambridge Analytica, Alexander Nix, like that they had that, it wouldn't have worked. Like it very much, as far as I can tell, relied in part on leveraging this name and address and date of people voting data. So, Holy shit. So, so this is piece number one. I was at a small company that's now a public company. Uh, in Briefly, I worked on it for four months, tw- you know, in 2013, 2014-ish. And they specialize in uh, helping use someone's name and address to find them online. Wow. And so, so you might say, so, so let's come back to a couple of our big ideas. You need a chain of events. So what is the chain of events that lets somebody get found online? So we've all been chased around the internet by ads, right? Like, like that's not news. So let, let me, and, and I, before Chris, you were talking about, um, you know, smart people in a room trying to manipulate you. So, so, so let's, let's start with like the best case <laughs> and then let's, let's back into how it worked in the, the 2016 election. So best case is we've got a marketer uh, for, let's say CVS and, and Chris, you're, you're, you're at CVS, right? You, you, you go yeah. to CVS all the time. You love Snapple. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you, so you're, you're buying your Snapple, you're doing your thing and you know, mm. something happens. You're like, look at yourself in the mirror. You're like, I'm eating, drinking way too much sugary drinks. No more Snapple. So there's a guy. Uh, I actually, there's not even a guy. There's like a team of folks that work at CVS that do marketing that try to find folks like you who were regular CVS customers that dropped off. Like, like, like their job is to keep people coming into CVS. This, this is not news. Like, this is it's customer retention. It's a very standard um, department in, in any corporation. Like it's much easier mm-hmm. to keep a customer coming back than it is to find a new customer. Like this, this, this is just business 101 standard practice. So 
one of the things that they do is uh, they say, hey, Chris, you know, we're going to give you a CVS rewards card. And so like, we'll give you 10, 10, like 5% off on your Snapple or whatever reward makes sense. Um, but every time you buy your Snapple, like just swipe your rewards card and you know, you'll, you'll, you'll earn points, blah, blah, blah. So you've been buying your Snapples and at the same time you got your rewards card. But when you filled out, uh, when you got your rewards card, you didn't just get the card. You had to fill out some information. You gave them your name and address. Um, and probably your email and some other stuff, but you gave them your name and address. Mm-hmm. Let's just focus on that for now. So we're in this world where Chris has been buying his Snapples, using his rewards card. So all the purchases are tracked. Mm-hmm. You, you look in the mirror, no more sugary drinks. It's been a yeah. month. And lo and behold, in the mail, you got a coupon for Snapple at CVS. Oh my God, how awesome. You were just looking at yourself and thinking, you know what, I'm still not losing weight. I miss Snapple. CVS just pushed me over the edge. I, I'm going to go back and buy a CVS, a Snapple CVS right now. Great. So, so that is um, kind of a snail mail version of marketing that I'm sure happens. Maybe, maybe not with CVS specifically, but just every day in, in America. Like this is a very standard thing that we're talking about. So that marketer, that marketing team at CVS, sure, they can mail you a postcard, uh, but wouldn't it be so much more effective to hit you online and send you that yeah. same card, that same discount, like 10, 20, 100 times in different places? Like instead of just once and hopefully you open the mail that day, but who the hell opens snail mail anymore? Like every time you, you just go around the internet, uh, wouldn't it be great if they could send you that, that ad? So the problem that they have is they know the ad that they want to send you, Snapple discount. They know your name and address. How the hell do they find you online? So there's these intermediaries that offer that ability. So how does this work? So, you know, uh, you and I, uh, g- give me a, a music, that any, any artist, Taylor Swift. Let's just keep it simple. Everyone loves Taylor I'll, Swift. I'm, go- I'm going to our concert. So whoop, whoop. you and I want to go see this Taylor Swift concert. And so we got to buy tickets. And if we buy tickets through Eventbrite, and you know, one of the things you have to do is click on their terms of service. No one's going to read it. But if you buy tickets, if you actually read the terms of service, which I did for Eventbrite from years ago, so they might have changed, but at least you know, 2017-ish, Eventbrite says very, very clearly, we will not sell your data. Mm. Um, but Taylor Swift is, you know, we've, we all heard, had some trouble with Ticketmaster. And so she was selling concert tickets to Ticketmaster. And if you look at their terms of service, it says we share data with third parties, which is another fancy, it's a fancy way of saying we were going to sell your data. And so now we're going to get into like a little coding thing. Uh, or, but essentially what happens is when you go to Ticketmaster to buy your t- Taylor Swift tickets or any website that takes any name and address data, uh, there's a company out there that will say, you know, we want that data. And what we're going to do is we're going to pay Ticketmaster to let us put a cookie on your, your web browser. We're, gonna, we're basically going to tag you and say, this web browser associated with this address. Yeah. And so now if anyone like a CVS marketing team wants to be able to uh, find someone online by their address, now that's, that's now possible. And the idea is essentially like, you know, people input their name and address data online in a bunch of different reasons. Ticketmaster is just one of them. Like I can come up with five other use cases. It doesn't really matter. But now we've kind of completed this loop from, and let's take a step back. So we have these two uh, 
big changes. Oh, so the last thing I should say about this, the ability to find people online. When I was at the company in 2014, it was small, but growing very quickly. Now it's a public company. Um, so the ability to find people online using their name and address data, that didn't exist in 2012. Didn't, definitely didn't exist in 2008. Um, but now it's possible. And so <clears throat> up until 2012, like that name and address data was public. And there's this cool book I read called The Victory Lab that talks about how different political campaigns use that name and address data on the ground. Um, George Bush, when he won in 2004, the second time, they were like finding Republican enclaves in Democratic areas and sending mm -hmm. out, you know, canvassers. And in, in 2008, uh, one of the things Obama did was like they found persuadable voters that lived along certain bus lines and like put ads up, physical ads, but ads up on wow. the buses based on that name and address data. But all that stuff is a drop in the bucket. It's not really comparable to digital advertising where you can target people down to the person and you can um, measure the effectiveness of your ads. And so now all of a sudden you can find these people online. And uh, the thing that we should kind of come to, because earlier you talked about like locating, you know, moms with two kids that live by the beach. So yeah. let's just talk about um, how you create audiences in Google ads or Facebook ads or whatever. So Google lets people advertise based on intent. So if I Google, you know, I want to buy new shoes, Nike would love to advertise against that. With yeah. Facebook, if I like, I'm a Nike fan, if I'm a, if I follow their page, I could, they could advertise against that. Both Google and Facebook uh, allow the idea of a totally different way of accessing audiences. Uh, in Facebook, it was called custom audiences. So if I, or actually, you should try this in Bang Two Three. If you have uh, emails for a hundred or two hundred people that have signed up on your website to like get notified of new episodes, you can advertise that. You can take that list of two hundred emails and give it to Facebook or give it to Google and say, "I want to send." these specific ads to these specific email addresses. You know, so you could also do lookalike audiences. You know about that as well. Exactly. So lookalike audiences. Really crazy. Yeah. So I could say, here's 200 email addresses. Find another 200 people that are similar to my 200 email addresses. Um, so the big thing that changed between 2012 and 2016, the world of digital advertising, was both campaigns had the ability to... Now take a bunch like to use the public voter uh, file data, identify you know swing swing voters by name and address, and say to any of the advertising platforms, we want to target these specific people. You know, Chris from One Two Three Main Street, <laughs> uh, and he needs to hit, hit Chris and like these other thousand people. They should all see the same ad. <clears throat> so that was the this string of events, this crazy, crazy, crazy string of events never existed in a presidential election before 2016. The advertisers went to, and you can find articles about this, the advertisers, Facebook, Google, and in this case, uh, we're talking about a partnership between a company called L7. Uh, I can send you the link if you want. L7, uh, they uh, are a voter file company. So just because each state has a voter file, it doesn't mean... Um, that they're all clean, that the data is that usable. They need to be like organized and standardized. And if you just move from Texas to Louisiana, like maybe you're on both roles. So they'll figure out where, which one is the real Chris, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so L7 has that. And then LiveRamp is the company that um, 
finds people online based on their name and address. So those companies created a partnership. I want to say in 2015 or 2014, uh, but like it, it's documented, like they, they issued a press release that said you can basically go from the voter file, this public name and address information, to finding people online. And wow. I don't think anybody in the the, the world, uh, in the the political world, really understood what that meant. Um, and it still blows my mind that that that's possible. So, so just to unpack that, you can take some file of public voter registration data, including what party you're registered as, and then you can track that person down on the internet. Yep, very. So, somehow, through through the help of other companies and whatnot. Yeah, no, it, this it's is- literally just these two companies did a partnership. So one company says, here is a clean, curated voter file with name, address, party affiliation, dates that people voted on, all of this here. And then another company says, great, you tell me which of those people you want, and I will push a request to Google or Facebook or whoever so that we can, so that you can send them political ads online. And I'm, I'm guessing that, okay, so now, all right, so now I have your basic voter data, name, address, political affiliation, dates you voted. I have where you live. So maybe I know like your political leaning based on where you live. You live in California, but you're Republican. Exactly. So you're a little different. Um, and I now have you online. So maybe I have additional information. Oh, you're on Facebook. You have 300 pictures and, oh, we can scrape those. Oh, you have lots of soccer in that and whatever. And so now this data set, it's like they really know you or they have the ability to know you on such a detailed level that it's like, I feel like they can speak to people in a way that people are not used to being spoken to on the internet via ads. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I, I think you're nailing it. Um, the th- There's a couple of key pieces here. So one is, let's just be really clear that this technology exists. When I say bring a knife to a gunfight, this is the gun. And it's yeah. a very complicated gun. Like it just took us, I don't know how long to get here. Um, but I saw an interview, I think the guy's name is Paul Westcott. He's like a VP of this company, L7, that does the voter file thing. And in this interview, he goes, you know, we went to Clinton and Trump and we said, you guys should use this tool that we've built for micro-targeted digital advertising online. And only one of those uh, campaigns decided to work with us. And that was Trump. That was the winner. Clinton rejected working with us. And it comes back to Teddy Goff and his strong belief that advertising, people don't trust advertising, but they believe they're friends. So, so that's the, that's my argument of bringing the knife to the gunfight that Teddy Goff was saying, we're going to make a, a tool to let people send SMS messages customized, um, you know, versus Cambridge Analytica, Trump, Alexander Nix saying, we're going to find persuadable people. And we have to get to the persuadable part. That's also kind of fun. Uh, but we're going to be able to find people online using going from the voter file to online market, online advertising. Yeah. Well, it's fucking important. Okay. This just, if you heard nothing in this podcast, all and all you heard was that, by the way, these political campaigns and, and a lot of people have your thumbprint so granular at such a granular level that 
you are probably not aware of it. These people know more about you than you think. Do you think going back to um, the micro-targeted ads, um, do you think that maybe this worked better for Trump or maybe Clinton chose not to do it? Because do you think that online ads in general work better on uneducated people, which made up a larger majority of Trump's uh, I don't think it has zero to do with education. Um, I think it's just two different philosophies. Like, again, like all I can refer to are public statements by Teddy Goff, head of Clinton's team, Alexander Nix, head of Trump's team. Teddy Goff said, uh, you know, we don't care about persuading the 2% of people in Ohio. We care about getting the whole country excited. We don't think advertising works because people don't trust advertisers. They trust their friends. Uh, It's a philosophical difference. Um, and well, he he's right. He he is he is right. But I, I guess it's like, oh, how the fuck do you do that? That's uh, that's really tough. Um, well, to do that, it, it, I think the the key thing that he's missing is people don't trust advertisers or or whatever won't respond to advertisements. The idea there is if you throw a billboard on the side of a highway, it's not very effective. It's not, mm. most people aren't going to look at a billboard and be like, yep, that sounds good to me. Like, it just doesn't work. Um, it back, comes back to where we started with the sledgehammer. It's a sledgehammer message. Everyone gets the same message. Ugh! And most people don't give two shits. <laughs> um, what Trump's team, what Cambridge Analytica, what Alexander Nix recognized was there's this amazing tool through, you know, the happenstance of the 2000 election followed by the Help America Vote Act that publicized name and address data. And then there's another company that goes around to the ticket masters of the world and says, I want to use name and address data to find people online. And holy shit, we can now move from sledgehammers to like pinpoint laser beams, (laughs) sending exactly the message that we want uh, to exactly the audience that we want. That is incredible. And this is, this is why, so I don't, I don't vote. In fact, I fucking hate politics, but this is how I look at politics, like a sports game. And it's like one team has this strategy. The other team has this strategy. Uh, this boxer is a, is a knockout artist. The other guy is good at dodging knockout artists. Who's going to win? And so this is fascinating. And you know what? Also, I, I struggle to relate to people who, because I'm trying to think of the person, the soccer mom, the co-worker, whoever, the educated college, white collar guy, where these ads work on them. Because ads just don't work on me. Bullshit. But y- you know Bullshit. Bullshit. Ads what? work on everybody in certain instances. In most cases, mm. in most things, we're not persuadable. I like Coca-Cola. I'm not going to drink Pepsi. What? I, I like Adidas. I'm never going to wear Nike. Whatever. It doesn't matter. There yeah. are... All of us have certain <laughs> things that we happen to be like, know a little bit about, but not that much that we're kind of interested, but not really that we're thinking about spending money on. We're thinking about voting on, but it, it just happened. Like I, I do not look at the swing voters and st- swing States and think, Oh, these people are morons that are susceptible to advertising. Right. I think that some of them were a 22 year old kid who cared a lot about the environment and, Clinton told them all about healthcare because she used a sledgehammer. Like she had a big ad about healthcare that everyone saw, whether or not they cared about healthcare. And Trump's team 
found, you know, a coal executive who, you know, was super educated. The guy went to Harvard um, and was on the fence, but kept getting these great coal ads, you know, and, <laughs> and that, that tipped him. So the, the, the one missing piece, and I'm kind of conscious of the time, uh, but the one missing piece in this is, is the micro-targeted advertising itself. So we, we went from, you know, uh, let, let, let's just quickly boil this back down again for, for everyone's sake. So the key question is why did the pollsters fail to predict Trump's victory? The answer is swing footers and swing states acted like they never had. They surged for Trump. And what's really interesting is that they were a diverse group of people. Some care about healthcare, some care about the environment. But despite all those differences, they all moved in the same direction disproportionately for Trump. We've established that we don't think that the Comey letter it makes sense as the, the sledgehammer message to people that care about coal and, and healthcare, that, that this trustworthiness emails message is going to be persuade, is going to be effective for them. And instead, we think that it's the campaigns and their messaging to these swing voters that, that seems more reasonable. And it's amazing that Clinton and Trump seem to, for everything I've found, have very, very different strategies, that Clinton's team was focused on customized SMS messages and getting friends to talk to their friends, because that, which made sense in 2008, 2012. So he's not totally crazy, but he missed the boat that the world had completely changed by 2016, and that was meaning that you could find people online using public name and address data. And that was the, the cornerstone of Trump's campaign. Um, mm. And so the next piece is great. Now we can find these people online. How do we message them? And what the hell does this have to do with the last two weeks of the election? And so there's this uh, Stanford professor, Michal Kaczynski, the guy I think was at Cambridge before he went to Stanford, um, but he was analyzing essentially the relationship between expensive data and cheap data. So and what he found was that you can correlate the two in a useful way. So have you ever heard of, for instance, like the Myers-Briggs personality test? Does that mean anything to you? Uh, vaguely, but please explain. Sure. So there's lots of, it's just one small example of the bigger idea, but there's this thing called the Myers-Briggs personality test. It'll tell you like, you know, are you an introvert or an extrovert? Do you like just different types of like, do you like to communicate a certain way? Da, 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 da. Like, are you more judgmental or not? But all that matters is the Myers-Briggs test. Uh, and, and it's funny talking to you because I think we're both pretty extroverted. Um, but the Myers-Briggs <laughs> test, it takes like I don't know, a good 20 minutes to do. You have to answer a bunch of questions like, you know, I get energy from talking to people. I don't get energy from talking to people, blah, 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 blah. So, what Kaczynski, this professor Kaczynski figured out is like, I could take, I could get a couple thousand people, pay them like 10, 20 bucks, whatever, maybe five bucks to take my Myers-Briggs test and get this really expensive data. And then I could look at that against other existing public data, such as like, what do they like? How many times do they just put a thumbs up like on Facebook or do they subscribe to certain magazines or whatever? Mm. And I could take my private, you know, expensive survey data for a couple thousand people and basically create a black box that correlates expensive data with cheap data. I can figure out that people that tend to like everything on Facebook that, you know, do like a hundred likes a week or something, these people tend to be extroverts. And so I don't need, mm. I, I, I can now, because I have this mm. correlation, if I want to target people in a certain way as an extrovert, I could pay them a bunch of money to take the survey, which, you know, 
if I want to spend a million, $10 million at scale for an election, like I can do that, but I don't have a billion dollar budget to have like the whole country take the stupid Myers-Briggs or anything else. But by getting, you know, a million, let's call it a million dollar budget on surveys, that'll give me a black box that I can now use to understand essentially, you know, a hundred million voters. There's more, but roughly a hundred million voters, let's call them across the country. And what, so what these guys, so that, that's kind of like the, this big idea of going from expensive data to, to cheap data. And so that was another huge piece of the Cambridge Analytica uh, strategy was, yes, we want to be able to find people online, but we also need to segment them into similar audiences. I need to get, find everyone who cares about healthcare. I need to find everyone who you know, cares about coal. And you know, the stupid way to do it is to say, you know, everybody, like there was an earthquake in Haiti. So everybody in little Haiti and Miami gets the same message. The sophisticated mm-hmm. way to do it is to use all that data and to say, okay, yeah, like the, the Haitian immigrant who you know, became an American citizen 20 years ago, he gets a, a message about Haiti. But we also found this woman who's a voter, a swing voter in Ohio, and she, you know, did uh, Doctors Without Borders for six weeks in Haiti. And she really cares about Haiti too. So we're going to send you know, the 70-year-old black guy from Haiti, the same message as like this 30-year-old woman, white woman in Ohio. And that that right there, my ta-da, that, that's micro-targeting. That, that is um, the, the ability to, you know, because they happen to, let's say, like follow the same two Haitian-related groups on Facebook or because they subscribe to a newsletter or like whatever of cheap public data they have, like that's the, the audience segmentation piece. I'm kind of, we can get more into it, but I'll, I'll leave it at this high level for the moment. Man, I no, I I think you're painting a pretty clear picture, and I, I think everybody will understand that at a bare bones, these these political parties and are the the campaigns used every freaking resource, or tr- in this case, Trump did because we're specifically talking about 2016. Mm-hmm. Used every resource they could to target you to get the most amount of data on you to serve the most specific effective ad they can kind of um so they they use the data that they had on you to figure out first and foremost are you worth advertising to at all and for most of us the answer was no that's a great that's a great point by the way yeah so before they waste their money it's like hey i mean listen if you're like some hippie in san francisco why would trump ever advertise you right exactly exactly and so if you're not a swing vote, if you're not in a swing state, you don't get these ads. If you're not a swing voter or swing state, you don't get these ads. Like the 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 super difficult problem, and I don't remember the math off the top of my head, but I wrote it out, is something like six million people out of sixty million people uh, are persuadable. And so if you mm. don't, so if you look at the swing at the whole population of these swing states, if you just want to send. A, Send blanket ads to them. It's super expensive and it's back to that sledgehammer. It's not going to be effective. You need to first and foremost figure out who's persuadable and not waste any money on them. You know, go, go back to like our uh, food court metaphor. Remember Carl, the conventional marketer? Most of the most of the flyers that he was handing out, like nobody gave two shits. Like it was just a waste of paper, waste of, of energy, time, money. Of, so step one to micro-targeting is. Get out of people's faces, and, and, and I, I will. I love how we've kind of gone back and forth this conversation multiple times between like, you know, how things look at the best and how they look at their worst. Um, I found a quote 
from you know Larry Page and Sergey Brin, the founders of, of Google, from like you know early in the company, and they talk about you know wouldn't it be great to live in a world where ads were actually interesting and relevant instead of like annoying? Mm. That that's what this is. That's what this is. If if you're annoyed by a Trump ad, then they wasted their money on you. So if, if you're seeing a Trump ad that like it pisses you off, like this that's um, that's either not micro-targeted advertising or failed micro-targeted advertising. But the key question that we started with, I want to make sure we end on, is what happened the last weeks of the election of 2016? Like Clinton was winning, Trump came from behind. The exit polls showed that people changed their mind disproportionately in the last few days. And we established how people's name, address, and when they vote was public information. So what I saw Cambridge Analytica say that they did was they said, we found people that tended to vote early. We segmented, we ran a bunch of surveys to create these correlations between expensive data and cheap data. We used that information to segment similar voters into similar groups. Coal people got coal mets to get coal messages, nurses to get healthcare messages, yada, yada, yada. And in late in mid to late October, we started testing those messages with small audiences and we figured out mm. what worked the best. And then in the last two weeks, right before the election, we deployed what we had measurably proven was effective. We deployed those messages at scale. Holy shit. Okay. All right. So, so this is bro. So what you're saying is they're kind of testing out but in the, the weeks and months leading up. It's like, Hey, does this message work on this segment? Does this message? And then the last two weeks or whatever is they had their tested audiences. They knew what worked and kicked it into overdrive. Exactly. So it's, we know that Chris tends to vote early. We think he's a swing voter. Um, we're going to be tracking the voter file. It's, it comes out on a daily basis who voted. Like so that a lot of states will give um, daily updates. So, so they said, you know, we want someone like Chris who we, every like, you know, the, all these last elections, the voter file shows that he tends to, to vote early and that he, he swing, like we've surveyed him and he's told us that, you know, he voted for Obama once and then he voted for Romney the next time. Like he's clearly persuadable. We're going to send him a bunch of messages and we see, you know, he voted yesterday. So now we're going to send him a survey. We're going to pay him 10 bucks to take the survey and tell us like, who did he vote for? And nice. great. So now we know this message was effective because Chris said, yep, I voted for Trump. Or he said, no, this is ineffective because I didn't, because I voted for Clinton. You know, like yeah. and we could measurably prove that with a small sample of early voters, you know, what was effective and then just deploy that to everybody in the last few days of the election, which as far as chain of events go, in my mind, sending measurably <laughs> effective ads in the last two weeks of the election to swing voters makes a lot more sense to get them to disproportionately vote for Trump than to send the same message about Hillary Clinton's emails and think that that would be as effective. Yeah, that's a good point. So do you think now, and, and by the way, Trump lost the popular vote, but he won the electoral. So it was, it was close, uh, but he was, I mean, he, he was a unique candidate. Uh, so do you think by the time 2020 came around like this, micro-targeted approach is just quid pro quo. This Everybody's doing this. Uh, or status quo. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I stopped looking. Um, I, I, yeah. I, have, I know like the short answer is I don't know why England would have stopped. <laughs> like 
Yeah. I mean, the voter, the voter file is still public. People's names and addresses are still public. It's still possible to advertise to people online using their name and address data. Um, I think it's a lot harder now with some of like the restrictions that Apple's put in place, blah, blah, blah. But like bottom line, um, I, yeah, like if, if you, maybe, maybe I'll flip your question around and say like where where we started and we we should, we should end here, but where we started was if I was a fly on the wall, like what would I wish? So let's flip it another way and say, now that I've laid out the story and I, which I think I can't, I don't, I can't say 100% I guarantee this is true because I don't have that ability, but I can say it sounds so much more plausible to me than the, the, the current narrative. If you believe the story I'm saying, what do I wish were true? Um, first and foremost, I wish that the government would stop publicizing our name and address data and especially like our voting, the dates on which we vote. Like yeah. it makes it, there, there is value to a campaign telling, you know, a millennial who like making an argument, like we're, we're good for the environment. You care the most about the environment, vote for us. Like, like there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, when it comes down to the level of, um, I, I mean, uh, essentially like, sorry, I'm thinking through this in real time, but the, the thing I was wondering is I wanted to make the argument that this shouldn't be possible. I think it should definitely be harder. Like we don't have to make the data public, but I also feel like let's make sure one side is not bringing a knife to a gunfight. Let's all just agree that like we've moved from the world of knife fights to gunfights. Yeah. This, and it, this brings me actually brilliantly to my last question for you. And then I'll let you go. I know you're super busy. Yep. My last question kind of is you can change one thing about the way our elections work. What would it be? Yeah, just um, dramatically change voter file data. Like I, I don't yeah. think, I, and I don't, I don't even know um, what the right answer is. But I, I think back to smart people in a room. I would love if for I'd love to understand first and foremost. I mean, people could actually like ask the people from the campaigns because I haven't spoken to anyone from the campaigns directly. We could ask them like, did this actually happen? Like, and if it did, we could come up with a strategy like to change when the voter file data is shared. Yeah, that makes more sense for the com- for the country. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. I'll tell you mine and and Please. mine is 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 probably definitely not going to happen, but <laughs> what I would like to see is <laughs> is a single we could call it an app, but it could be a website. And this app has all of the candidates on it um, from all sides and it has all of all of the issues yep. on it, whatever crime, poverty, environment, everything. And each candidate can post a two minute answer answering what what's my plan to tackle crime? What's my plan yep. to tackle the environment? And that's it. And there, and advertising for candidates is illegal. You cannot do that. If you want to know about the issues, you have to go to this app and you can scroll on each app. Now that doesn't stop someone like, for example, AOC from having a YouTube page yep. and posting hours of content. I don't care. But this one app should be the repository for all the issues. You cannot weigh 
one person more than the other. Joe Biden can't be at the top of the list just because he's Joe Biden. That's yeah. what I want. I want it simple. I want it centralized. I know it's, that's that's outrageous. It's interesting. No, I mean, okay. So we're, we're kind of opening up the question. I've been thinking very narrowly about the voter file. Um, I would love to see a calmer politics in our country. I love our country. I think America's great. I think we've got a ton of problems, and it's still great. Um, of course. And I mean, I, 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 I mean, I don't take it for granted. But the the thing, if I, I would love to see. I, I think a lot of the problems that we have are systemic, and we, if we tweak the system, the system itself, I think we would have better outcomes. So one thing I would love to see is ranked choice voting, for instance. So the mm. idea that I'm throwing away my vote really pisses me off. Um, I think I, if I want to vote for the Green Party as my like first candidate, just to show like this is where I really wish we could go, and then I want to vote for the Democrat because they're as close as I'm going to get. But there's some something where I could better convey yeah. like what makes the most sense. Like I, that would be awesome to me. Um, there, there's de- there's a number that, that's the one off the top of my head. There's a number of steps I think we could take along that li- those lines. I don't know if you ever have you ever touched ranked choice voting. Does that mean anything to you? No, I've I've heard about it. I mean, yeah. I'm familiar with the concept. I've never voted in a ranked choice exactly. election yeah. though. Well, if you have never voted in an election, it's not going to be ranked choice. But it's it's complicated. <laughs> um, but I think it's uh, I think it, it's things like that. Um, and and a great example I would say is like Alaska. So like. Sarah Palin just lost in Alaska because of ranked choice voting. Like they could have sent this extreme right wing congressperson to the House of Representatives, and instead they chose like a moderate, much more moderate person because of ranked choice voting. Um, wow! And I think I just love to see more of that, uh, and and anything that we could do to just calm <laughs> things down, uh, <laughs> I, I think would would be phenomenal. So, hey, remember when the news story of the day was? The color of Obama's suit. Oh my God. Damn. Remember he, what is he? Oh, this is America. What is going on? Yeah. I was like, I was like, everybody was losing their shit. I was like, oh man, what is this really a big, I was, what's going on? And now it's all kind of crazy. You're so right, dude. I think everybody agrees with you, but it never happens. Well, that's why, that's why the game is called, what do you wish? <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah. Cool. Dude, I love I, I love the way your brain works, by the way. I would just say that um I just studying you or not st- talking to you. Yeah. Your brain is don't ever change, please. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Michael. This is a lot of fun. Um yeah, where 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 can people find you? I know you have a YouTube and so, a website. Ish. Uh, uh so I I'm I'm really not doing well online. So the, the website that I built that's like hasn't been updated in years. But if you want to see okay. uh anything more about this, it's a uh, microtargetbook.com. So microtargetbook.com. Um, and it has, I, I put, I published there like the first chapter or two I had written. It has a link to YouTube where I have some videos that kind of detail some of the stuff. Um, you can see there's lots of references. So like a lot of the, the claims that I'm making, if you're like, that sounds like bullshit. You, I mean, you, you could argue with me, but you could at least see where I got my you know information from. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's, that, that would be the best way to learn more about this uh, exciting topic. And if anybody <laughs> knows of someone who like is interested in film documentaries or uh, book publishing, which is a very, very, very crowded space, but if someone was interested uh, in something like that, I'd be happy to have a conversation.
You should, yes. Please call them because I think you have such one, you're talking about such a polarizing subject and you have such a unique view and you're able to back it up, you know, not with some bullshit with like legitimate views, opinions, experiences. I think it's just your message. Please don't stop talking because it needs to be out there. It's so insightful, so incredible about such an important event in our history. So please don't ever stop talking. Thanks, Chris. Uh, This has been a blast. Bang two, three. (laughs) Bang two, three. Thanks, man. Have a good one. Yep.